Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1 with Opal, Crossland, Corsa and Mocha. Three good reasons to visit the Opal Open Road event. I want to begin first this morning, though, with Colm Henry, Chief Clinical Officer with the Health Service Executive. Very good morning and happy Christmas to you, Colm. Thank you for coming in to us. Two studies reported in the course of the last 24 hours now suggest that uh, Omicron infections are less likely to lead to hospitalisation compared to Delta. One of which from South Africa says that people are 70 to 80 percent less likely to need hospital treatment with Omicron. Does this give cause for optimism? There's some initial cause for optimism, certainly, and never has data been scrutinised so closely as it has over the um, over the course of the pandemic and over the past few days. Uh, studies are coming to light even before they're ratified and preprint studies as we call them, statements and so on, because there's such a hunger out there for people wanting to know what does this mean? What what does a surge in cases mean in South Africa, in Denmark, in the UK and of course in Ireland? Will it lead to huge pressure on our healthcare services? And the data is evolving. There hasn't no sooner that we absorb one set of data than more data comes comes through. What we can say, Philip, so far is certainly uh, we know from the initial information, more transmissible. We know that that it's three or four times more transmissible than the Delta variant. In the United look at the United States for example, uh, just a few weeks ago, it, Omicron was 1% of sequence cases, now 73%. It, it, rapid, rapid displacement of the Delta in a much shorter time frame than the Delta displaced the pre- previous mm-hmm, variant. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing, strong evidence from predominantly lab-based studies that it, it is able to evade immunity from either natural infection or from vaccines. Certainly reduced protection if you've been previously infected and reduced protection if you've been vaccinated. We, we know that. We might talk about that if, if you wish. Um, and now, of course, what does the harm, what harm goes along with this surge in cases we're going to see from this growth advantage this variant having? And we're beginning to see that initial information come through from uh, South Africa, from a UK study, the Imperial College, and from Scotland, which suggests at this stage that there's a reduction in hospitalisation of people with Omicron compared to those with Delta. If anything of the order, depending on which study you look at, up to 80%. Very welcome. We have yet to see this, see the, the evidence of what happens once people are hospitalised, or is the disease any less severe? What's the data about ITU? Once people are hospitalised, are they any less likely to need ICU? So there's more information we need to see to feed through. And one more point for quickly, Philip, is whatever, even if it's a welcome lower conversion of cases through to hospitalisation, if we face the huge numbers we anticipate seeing, and we're seeing in Denmark and the UK, uh, even if a smaller proportion of those convert through to hospitalisations, they're big numbers for healthcare system. Okay. So correct me if my summary is wrong here, but what you seem to be saying is that while it might be a sniffle and a cough in the vast majority of people because of the increased transmissibility, there will be a higher number of people who will get it and there could yet still be sufficient numbers to overwhelm the hospitals. Certainly a welcome trend to see a lower conversion hospitalisation, but even if that's a lower con- lower proportion, a, a small proportion, as we've heard the past few days many times, a smaller proportion of a big number can still be a big number coming into hospitals, a hospital system that's already under significant pressure. And this data, is it likely to change or is you know, the disparate results that you're getting from all over the place all moving in more or less the same direction? It's evolving and rolling that and there's a lag to it, uh, which is infuriating because we want to know the answer right now. But the, the lag means that, be, be, first of all, we find out there's more cases, more presentations. Then we have to wait to see how they convert into, what proportion of those cases convert into hospitalisation. And then we have to wait further again because of the course of the illness, how long it takes for those to convert into people who require the care on, in intensive care units. Um, we see that 
that in anticipation of our public services being overwhelmed with people who are either close contact or who are positive or who are out ill, that it might end up being the case that uh, key workers will be made exempt from safe self-isolation requirements. Is that something that you're entirely happy about trying to communicate to your staff? Well, it, 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 first of all, it's something that's already in place for healthcare workers. We've had this in for the very beginning, and I just want to acknowledge at this time, uh, for the second Christmas in a row, our healthcare workers in hospitals, ICUs, everywhere are facing into a, a second Christmas of uncertainty, one which will leave them with little rest given the potential, the, the existing pressures they're facing and the potential surge in additional cases. So we have uh, recognised in the very beginning that for those healthcare workers who don't have symptoms and who are designated as close contacts, that we, that we sought and, and secured that what we call a derogation, which means that, that under certain conditions and under certain supervision, they can continue to work, providing, of course, they have no symptoms and their tests are negative for COVID-19. Mm. But I suppose but the reason I'm asking the question is what reassurances do you offer to frontline workers who are required then to work alongside somebody who could possibly ill. Is there anything that you can say to them other than just suck it up? Well, first of all, obviously, it's a, it's a government decision if, if this derogation applies to other sectors. But the single message I have for anybody, uh, whether they're healthcare workers, whether they're other frontline workers in other sectors, is uh, the single most important message is if they have symptoms, regardless of where they work, uh, they should self-isolate, stay at home and wait for a test. So that message is simple and it cons- it's consistent and it should apply to all settings, all workers uh, everywhere. Let's talk about the messaging around uh, boosters. How much more protected are people from Omicron once they receive a booster vaccine compared to having just had two doses? Well, the, the results to date largely evolving again. The evidence is evolving, but there is reassuring evidence. First of all, the bit of negative news, of course, is that we see that the based on protection against symptomatic infection, of course, that covers, as you point out earlier, sniffles and milder infection, that that unfortunately seems to have waned significantly against Omicron because of the diminished impact of these neutralised antibodies that we hear about. So what we what we see is that there's a reduced protection certainly for AstraZeneca after four or five months yeah. to, and for the Pfizer vaccine. How, how so, close to unvaccinated are people who received uh, AstraZeneca? Jobs? Well, the, the protection against against symptomatic infection, which is not severe illness, and I'll come to that in a second, certainly go, goes to approaches 0% after four or five months, which is all the more reason we're encouraging people to get that booster vaccine. And they're taking them up in huge numbers, huge numbers. So it's, it, it is very encouraging to see us again. Have we removed AstraZeneca? from the suite of vaccines that are being offered now? Well, currently we give mRNA vaccines and that's... So it's, it's only Moderna yes, or the Pfizer? the only booster is the mRNA vaccine, to be clear about that. But to, be, to go back to the earlier point, Philip, is uh, it is a little bit... The message is a little bit more nuanced about what protection the existing vaccines give. Uh, yes, the, the, this antibody response seems to be diminished and yes, that results in diminished protection against symptomatic infection. But there seems to be a lingering, longer protection against serious illness from the existing vaccine programmes, which is something welcome. There's... Uh, immune system isn't just a function of the antibodies you have. There are other parts of the immune system which lie dormant and come to life mm-hmm. once somebody uh, to protect people against serious illness. And do you have a separate set of analysis for those who would have um, whatever natural immunity is conferred by having had the disease? Yes, this, it's interesting you say that because uh, one of the, the people are, are trying to interpret these studies about reduced reduction in hospitalisation and the kind of two theories going out at the moment is number one that the, 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 the new variant is less virulent or less nasty and in the sense of how it infects people. And the second is we we have been aware that people with Delta uh, variant that who have who have a naturally acquired infection and vaccination have extraordinarily high levels of protection. So the vaccination and infection confers additional protection. And one theory uh, playing into this current. Re- 
observation of this reduced hospitalisation is that there's a lot of people out there who not just were vaccinated but had natural infection as well and had this additional robustness in their immune system protecting them against hospitalisation. Is it down to boosters and having received them that older people aren't, or that the virus isn't rising as quickly in the older cohort as it is in the younger cohort who haven't yet been able to get to the boosters? Yes, and we have uh, figures when we showed our press conference yesterday playing through now, again, evolving data all the time, Philip, and that's what's, what's that's showing is a coinciding with the administration of boosters to the over 80s and a few weeks later to the over 60s, we saw a fall in those successive age groups, the over 80s, the over 70s, now the over 60s. And we've seen a big shift to the left in with the case numbers. If you look at the over 65s, just only uh, the beginning of November, I think, they comprised about 12% of all cases. Now it's just over 3%. So it's gone from being... So this makes a powerful case for the efficacy of the boosters. Absolutely. Boosters. And the shift has gone over to, to the younger population. But, but uh, uh, in, in the, the flip side of that is we've seen a big rise in cases in those 18, 24 and 24, 35 age groups. Big rise in cases over the past week. And, and it's to be expected with increased socialisation, perhaps with the waning of the impact of the of the vaccine as well. Is a fourth dose around the corner a matter of inevitability at this stage? We're all looking at that news from Israel. It's interesting. They've always been ahead of the rest of the world in terms of rollout of vaccine and in terms of their strategy. It remains to be seen whether there's strong evidence underpinning the the rationale for a fourth dose. Uh, what we what we can I, I I haven't seen that evidence yet, and and, and what underpins the, or what, what what is informing the Israeli position. Um, certainly, we're learning to live with this virus more, and I imagine in time, uh, based on the best projections we have, that it, it will eventually become endemic, and it will become part of our lives to get regular vaccination. But it's we're far from certain of that yet. Look, I mean, we're hearing reports that would suggest that it is all shoulders to the wheel on getting the booster program rolled out. What though of PCR testing? We are again, and this is anecdotal. Mm -hmm. I don't have oversight. This is why we bring you in to ask you these questions. But it would appear that there are difficulties in significant areas of the country in accessing PCR tests still. Absolutely, Philip. There's no uh, point in denying that. That we're, we, we've reached, every time we say we've reached a capacity, a limit to PCR testing, we have to build it up further. And we went, we once had a capacity only a while ago of 100,000 a week. And now we're 250,000 a week PCR tests. And we're building building up further to 280,000 te- uh, tests a week. But there's a limit to this. We can't, uh, uh, at the moment, we're able to serve all the demands that are there. There are times when uh, people can understand can't access appointment. I'd urge them to check the HTC website again because we do throughout the day we release more appointments and people can see on the website where they are and where, where they can access the test. But, but Colin, if we can't normalise access to boosters when they're needed and PCR tests, whenever anybody feels even the slightest anxiety that they might need one. Well, then we're never going to get to a situation where we can treat it as endemic and that we can just normalise our lives around this virus, are we? Certainly, this is not a normal time. It's not endemic now. We're dealing with it. To be very clear with this, Philip, we're dealing with a a variant that is much more transmissible and and all countries around Europe, around the world, are treating it as an exceptional, difficult event to have to deal with. So there's nothing normal or endemic about the situation. I was talking about into the future. I mean, if we cannot get significant enough capacity for absolute on-demand testing when and where people Mm -hmm. need it. Well, then 
we're not going to be able to normalise and absorb this virus into our day-to-day lives. When we talk about normalise, Philip, it's at a time we wouldn't see surges such as this. It's an extraordinary surge in cases. If, we, if you look, as I said earlier, at the CDC in America, the Centre of Disease Control, has seen a leap in two weeks from 1% of cases to 73% of cases of, a new vari- of this new variant. So this is an extraordinary surge of a, a variant that came to light only in mid-late November in South Africa. And, and uh, no, no testing system around the world could expect to be configured against the such a rapid surge in a short number of weeks. At this point in time, we're able to absorb the demand. A rule set has changed to to lean further into antigen tests for those who are asymptomatic, no symptoms, who are close contacts. So we're deploying different tests, PCR for symptomatic people, and the antigen tests more and more for those people who are close contacts who have no symptoms. The antigen test thing leads to points of controversy, not for the first time, uh, though, because yesterday there was confusion about the positivity rate of school tests. The Education Minister, Norma Foley, told the news at one that only 3.6% of antigen tests carried out in schools were positive. But then the HSE told RTE News that of more than 90,000 tests sent out, only 8,000 of them had actually been reported back. And when you do the maths on that, on that section that ended up being reported back, you're talking actually about a 40% uh, positivity rate. Now, that can't be accurate, really, can it? No, the, the, the truth here, I understand Minister Foley was saying she was actually correct in the way she presented the figures. It's just the, uh, the interpretation of those. Of but she doesn't know what happened to 80,000 of those tests. What, I mean, they could have been thrown in the bin. What, what, what happens here is that 90,000 odd antigen has to be given. Now, this was done, as you know, to uh, to address fears and concerns of uh, teachers and of parents in, for children in pod settings who, again, have no symptoms. Let's be really clear about this, that we're encouraging children who have symptoms stay away from school, um, uh, do not get tested. Do, mm-hmm. going, going to school with symptoms is not a good idea and certainly shouldn't be encouraged or facilitated in any regard. But of the 90,000 tests that we've given out to children who are in these pods, um, wh- what happens is if they're positive, we ask uh, uh, the parents to register that test because that triggers the access to the PCR test to confirm that your antigen test is indeed represent a positive PCR test and triggers all those public health actions. So the great majority, of course, are negative. So pe- people have no incentive uh, and don't uh, don't register the negative tests. So it, a minority of the 90,000 given out, it's true to say that, that a total of uh, uh, maybe about eight or 9,000 have been registered, of which uh, 40% have been positive but there's no incentive or compulsion for people who have negative tests to register them, register them because no actions follow. So is it a, a guess at best then to say that the positivity rate was 3.6% or would it have been more accurate to say the positivity rate is somewhere between 3.6% and 40%? I think I tr- certainly I, I trust parents. I trust them to do the right thing. I, tr- I trust that parents will have used this test and I trust that those parents who had positive results would have registered regist- registered the result in order to access the PCR test for their okay. child. But it is I, more I useful for you if everybody registers all results, it, it, be they positive or negative. People have a lot to do. The most biggest thing I would say is the most important message and why people will argue over figures is number one, if the child is symptomatic, don't go to school and get a test. And number two, if the antigen test is positive, stay at home and get the PCR test through re- registering the result. And that's what we're seeing parents do here. And while we're talking about the smallies, we're expecting the vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds to begin now from the 10th of January, isn't it? We've heard this morning that from Israel, where they generally have a very high uptake rate, rate in the over-18s, that um, the figure for 5 to 11-year-olds has only been 12%. Mm. 
Have you got a plan for how you're going to combat that scepticism around giving it to national school kids? Yes, it, it, we have. We've been working very closely over the past few weeks in anticipation of the NIAC advice that came through in early December. Let's look at the NIAC advice. It's, it's a bit nuanced. There's two groups. One is those for whom the vaccine is strongly recommended. That's children with underlying conditions, children living with other children who have uh, uh, underlying conditions too, or, or children living with adults who have immune compromise. So that's the first group for whom we strongly recommending the vaccine for their protection. For whom you would have to assume that there's a natural incentive within that household to get the vaccine Of course. Anyway. And we, we, we have already begun this through the hospital-based gr- uh, groups of children who are attending the, the kind of service you see, renal services, yeah. cancer services and so on. And we're opening the portal for parents to self-register because of those other two groups of who's li- who the kid is living at home with and what should happen. And we'll be opening that portal on December 28th. Then the second group is all the other kids, kids who don't have underlying conditions, kids who are thankfully healthy and those who are not living with anybody who's vulnerable for one reason or another. We're still encouraging uh, parents and giving them all the information uh, they they need in order to give the vaccine for their children. Ultimately, it's a decision for them as the guardians of the child. Thankfully, serious illness is rare in children, hence maybe explaining some of the low uptakes in some countries. Um, There are some yet unknowns, the effects of long COVID in children and so on. Um, There's also the obvious benefits to society of more people getting vaccinated. But that decision ultimately is up to parents and they can make that decision based on the information we provide to them. Okay. How worried are you about staffing levels in hospitals now over the course of the next couple of weeks? Uh, certainly worried, Philip, over a number. The, the number of staff out on COVID-related leave has dropped from just over 5,000 to 3,000 or thereabouts, which is welcome. Uh, but I'm worried more about something we can't measure, which is the uh, is staff who are, who are exhausted and uh, two years into a pandemic. Yeah. Those on the front line and anyone who's visited there, who has worked there, who have uh, relatives or friends there, will know the, exa- the, the, the slowness of healthcare in a COVID setting. We're not just talking about the intensity of the, of the care and the, dealing with lots of sick people and more sick people. It's the donning and doffing of the PPE. It's the constant vigilance. It's the distancing in hospital settings or other healthcare settings to be mindful that, that there's... And there's really there's, not it, much it, that you can offer by way of relief to those it's, people who are it, facing burnout. Well, it, it is very difficult. Of course, I will say, and you'd expect me to say that I appeal to anybody listening this morning, that for their sake, do your bit with all the advice we're asking, whether it's staying at home and isolating if you're sick, or whether it's getting the booster vaccine, or there's reducing your close contacts. The, the cumulative efforts, the multiple effects of all those little ripples will help certainly prevent cases. Because we do talk or pay lip service to the idea of supporting our frontline staff so often, don't we, without ever actually doing anything. Well, here's something that you can do. Don't get sick. Don't place extra pressure on them. Yes, I think people do listen, Philip, and I think people do appreciate them. We know that. And I think people do make the link. Uh, We have seen that uh, certainly in recent weeks with a stabilisation of of figures. Uh, Unfortunately, we're seeing cases go up again, probably in relation to Omicron. But people do listen. And it's it's, it's difficult for them to be asked a second Christmas in a row to to comply with these uh, guidelines again and to try and reduce contacts and to stay at home, as I say, if they're sick. But those effects, every single effort that people make, uh, the cumulative effect will be to to certainly protect patients, protect vulnerable and protect healthcare workers and services. And take off your clinical director HSE hat for a moment and give me your personal response, please, to the news that the United States, EU and UK combined have in the course of the last six weeks received more vaccination shots than the entire global south has in the course of the last year. And Omicron, as we know, most likely came from the global south. Does it make sense to keep on doing what we're doing? 
looking after ourselves and not the global south? Uh, and is it just to keep on doing what we're doing? In short, no, Mike Ryan and others have spoken much more eloquently than I could from the WHO on, the need, on this principle that we're not all protected till everybody is protected. And that is, that is a fundamental. We've seen within Europe at the beginning when there's a vaccine race, some countries rush ahead of others and so on. And the rapid realisation that you couldn't bar, put a barbed wire around your island and protect yourself from other countries. So from a purely self aspect of self-interest, if not altruism, it makes sense to vaccinate as much of the world as quickly as possible. Because another variant is inevitable. Yes. It's probably cooking right now in these places that are unvaccinated. There are variants all the time. People, I, I don't want people to feel uh, feel uh, overly pessimistic. This is an extraordinary uncertain time again. Variants happen all the time in all viruses. The great majority of them are of no clinical impact. This one potentially is because of the information coming through to us and because of the rise in case numbers. And we've learned hard lessons from failing to act too early. And that's what's happening now. Right across Europe is countries are taking the appropriate action quickly enough to, to, to ensure that their healthcare systems don't become overwhelmed. All right, some cause for optimism there. Still a fairly grim assessment of where we are this Christmas. But uh, Colm Henry, the best to you and yours uh, and all of your colleagues. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. And I can say now, if you found that grim listening, we have some very, very positive news on how Santa Claus is beating the virus with uh, Cleano Farrelly, Professor of Comparative Immunology and Biochemistry in Trinity College Dublin, no less, coming up a little bit later on in the programme. Right now, though, I want to take a break. <laughs> 